Hey everybody, welcome to another podcast, which I like to call Hints and Guesses, a line from T.S. Eliot. And today, I wanted to try to get closer uh, to something that's in my new book, Bitten by a Camel. In the chapter I call uh, Beyond Bible Worship, part of my own unloading, um, part of my own leaving home base, um, home base being evangelical Christianity, um, has to do a bit with the Bible and the biblical text and how it's used. Um, And I guess one of the things that um, surprises me, well, two things. One is that the Bible, for me now, the the stories particularly, are in some ways more intriguing on the other side of the constraints constraints of um, an infallible or inerrant um, book that fell from the skies. I find, in other words, I find the stories more alluring and more disturbing. Um, and and also one of the things that is evident to me is that the Bible still um, poses issues and and problems and questions to people. I've been doing a little bit of traveling with the book and without exception, someone wants to ask me about the Bible. Someone wants to ask me about this chapter beyond Bible worship. Someone wants to know what I mean by mythopoetic because that's my suggestion that the Bible at its best is a mythopoetic text. And I'll try to describe what I mean by that, but that's not really what I want this podcast to be about. I want to try it. I want to try out what I'm suggesting. I want, I want to try to explore how does one read mythopoetically, if such a thing even exists. So the word, at least what I mean by the word, a myth is a, is a story that's true, um, or I'd like to say more true than um, historical. In other words, it's not historical, but it's true. And actually the fact that it's not rooted in straight-ahead history gives it its mythic qualities. Um, it's a story that's, that exists slightly outside of a specific context. And it uh, rummages around in archetypes and metaphors and symbols and colors and seasons and cycles that are in the deep psyche of all human beings. And you know you stumble upon one, uh, well, sometimes you don't know you stumble upon one, but you might find yourself suddenly paying attention to a story um, or to a symbol or to an image or to a scene. This can happen in a movie, but it may not just be because the director is awesome and you like the actor, but it's, it's rummaging around in this archetypal material that's deep inside your own uh, psyche and your own being. And so a mythopoetic, what do I mean by poetic? I mean um, language that's poetic in nature, meaning it points to a truth beyond itself using image and sound. Um, So the truth isn't the word itself, but the thing to which the word kind of winks at or nods at or points at. Maybe you know the Buddhist phrase, like a finger pointing to the moon. That's kind of what I mean by the poetic nature of the Bible. 
Um, so if you want to say it points to God or to uh, what it means to be human um, or what is truth, that's the moon. The finger perhaps is the language and the image and the symbols and stories and sometimes the emotional content that comes with uh, the telling. So that's what I mean by mythopoetic text. And if I could just give a little bit more detail, um, the, the Bible, of course, is uh, well, my professor uh, used, to, used to, my archaeology professor used to say the Bible's a cake and it has ingredients in it. And some of those ingredients are history, myth, story, image, language, literary structures, editorial insertions. But we don't know how much of each ingredient is used, which is a nice way of saying the Bible isn't just a mythopoetic text, but its power is in its mythopoetic nature. And at other times, it might stray into history, like such and such king reigned for five years and then he died. In that sense, the Bible is trying to say something historical. It might not be as accurate as we would expect from a modern historian, if they're really accurate, fake history. Um, but nevertheless, the Bible has ingredients um, that aren't uh, only mythopoetic. So enough of that. What do I mean? How do you use it? What's an example? I've been thinking a lot about the Jacob and Esau narrative. And I want to tell that story, bits and pieces of that story, and I want to draw on the three levels of biblical reading. So the three levels, in, in my view, are the level of story, what does it actually say? And believe it or not, people like don't often even just read the story. Um, don't know who's related to who and what the context is and um, uh, that sort of stuff. So what does the story actually say? And how does the story move? Where does it slow down? Where does it speed up? Um, basically like listening 101. What's the story? The second level of reading, and these aren't necessarily in a, like a ladder, but a dimension of reading, might be a better way of saying it, or maybe it's like a sphere. So another element of the sphere is the context. And this is where, like most of pastors and you know, people went to seminary and um, what, what people are kind of getting used to now. Um, what does the context say? So we might things, say things like, well, Jesus was Jewish, and what you have to know about Judaism is blah, 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 or, um, or well, you need to understand the Hebrew word here, that the Hebrew word really means um, fill in the blank, and, and that's context. Um, and sometimes it's a little bit of historical context, like you might need to know, oh, during the Exodus, okay, uh, Egypt was the world power, and um, they're like the America in the story. They're the big cat on the scene. And the Israelites, or the Hebrew people, um, as they would have probably referred to themselves, something like that, um, are the mice. They're the small, the small uh, tribal kind of affiliation, sort of the opposite of a world power. Um, that's context. And that can be extremely interesting. And you can spend the rest of your life only thinking about context, as a lot of people did. I mean... Uh, almost all my work in the first century study Bible 
that I did is around context, language, uh, cultural background. And sometimes it helps illuminate the story. Now you can get lost in the weeds and you start to think to yourself, if I could just get the meaning of this one Greek word absolutely correct, I would know the meaning of the text, and really, translation is, I would know what God wants me to do or think or believe. But that game um, can't, uh, well, it's a game. It, it just has no end. It has no end. You can get lost in context forever. There's always a different nuance. There's always some ambiguity with the word or the grammar. In other words, when people say things like, well, I just believe what the Bible says, you can't get to the bottom of that well. It's too deep. Um, but at the same time, a contextual reading can be very life-giving. And I can think of thousands of examples, and I'll try to give you some as I go on. So the third element of this sphere is the mythopoetic. The mythopoetic reading, where you begin to sink into the archetypal images. You begin to sink into the deep structure of the story. And here's where the story begins to work on you. And that is the difference. A myth works on the listeners. How does it work? It works like a river works on a stream bed. You know the stream bed is shaped, but you can't quite see, you can't quite detect uh, when and quite where that shaping happens. It's slow, it's mysterious, or a flash flood can come and grind out a new section of the river. Or it can be a drought and barely a trickle and you can't even, you don't even notice that the rock is being worn in a certain way. That's what a myth is like. And you almost have to submit yourself to your imagination to get into a more mythic level of reading. And same with poetry. Poetry has to wash over you. The sound of the words, um, uh, is calling forth or evoking some emotion. It could be a thought, but uh, almost works better when, when an emotion gets pricked. Um, and, and here's the way to detect you're in the mythopoetic realm is that there are things that really bother you in the story, annoy you, uh, enrage you, attract you. Um, you're ex suddenly extremely curious you're not sure why, but you find yourself really drawn to so-and-so um, in the story. That, there, those, that kind of um, dance is when the story is working on a more mythic level. And it's washing over you in a certain way. So let's talk a bit about uh, the Jacob and Esau narrative. So Isaac um, is 40 years old when he... Um, when, it, when he's told he's going to have a child um, or he's told really that obviously his wife is pregnant he's not going to have the child um, but we're in a patriarchal culture so um, it's very important uh, for one's lineage to be passed on and with it money and values and uh, cultural systems by the way surprisingly although the Bible is very patriarchal, it, it, it's surprisingly uh, illuminating in giving uh, 
women a voice, and you'll see that in the story. So um, anyway, uh, Rebecca, uh, who is Isaac's wife, um, becomes pregnant. And um, previously she was barren, which is like a major theme. And tapping into something in the, the, the psychic archetypal realm already, we feel barren and we're unsure of the future. Will the human race survive? Will my values and my family uh, survive? Um, so anyway, she becomes pregnant and um, she has in her womb two boys, which she's told already are going to be two nations, two brothers, two nations, and they're jostling tumbling, wrestling in her belly. And already you're, you have the first glimpse of where this story is headed. These two boys are going to fight. And these two boys are going to be the father of uh, tribes um, that are going to fight or nations that are going to fight. Um, so anyway, it comes time for the boys to be born and Esau is the firstborn. And Esau comes out red and hairy, like a wild beast of the red earth. And you're already thinking about earth-like images from Genesis um, and the original Adam who's made of dust and is, uh, Adam also means red. So um, you get this red, hairy, beast-like man. And I'm, by the way, primarily just telling you the story. I threw in a little bit of context there. Um, or extended the story back to Adam and a little bit of language, Adam, meaning red. So um, his brother uh, is named Jacob and he comes out second. He's born second, so he's, the, he's not the firstborn, which is in patriarchal culture the most important, sort of head of the family. Um, but he's grabbing, he's grasping, he's clinging to his brother's heel. So they name, they name him Jacob, which is like, heel grabber, um, and is related to the word deception, as you've probably heard. At least that's the, that, that is a suggested nuance of this kind of mysterious uh, word. So in any case, um, he's the heel grabber, the deceiver. So you know you're getting a taste of what's to come. So um, interestingly enough, uh, Esau... The hairy wild one is liked by his father who's struggling in eyesight and is getting old. And Rebecca um, loves Isaac. And it, it says something awesome. It says, Esau is a skillful, skillful hunter and a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Just think about the, the imagery already um, in terms of what are people like. Let's take it out there for a minute. What are people like out there in the world? Um, and who doesn't resonate a bit with parental uh, favoritism and sibling rivalry and um, the hunter wild one who wanders the forest and the one who chills out in the tents and likes to be quiet, you know? And this is some rich, rich material. So um, one day, 
uh, Esau comes in from hunting, and apparently he's not too successful because he's famished, and he begs his brother for some of this lentil stew. And uh, Jacob, the ever-clever man of the tents, uh, tricks him and basically says, all right, give me your birthright, firstborn, um, in exchange for this food. And uh, Jacob, or excuse me, uh, Esau says, sure, he's famished, he doesn't care. What good is it to me? I'm about to die. And here's a man of, of appetites. Um, and so let's pause here for a second and begin to explore the kind of mythic themes here. And I'll try to be as direct as I can. It seems on one level that what's happening here on the deep, in the deep structure is we're meeting two sides of our own psyches, our own selves. Within, we have a wild one of the forest, a hairy red beast who's much more in touch with his appetites and is willing to say, who cares about social structure and convention and birthrights? I'm hungry. I'm famished. I've been out in the desert um, with my bow and I'm stumbling back into the tent. That wild one is already within. And the moment I say that, it's like something wakes up. Yeah, that's right. Think how many stories involve a character like this. I can even think of later characters that seem to embody this, like John the Baptist, this wild one of the forest who, who eats bugs and dresses up in, in crazy camel clothing and screams at people down by the river. That's, a, um, that's an Esau-type character. Now, that lives within. And also without. Some people, we would say, are more, quote, wired that way, but I tend to think um, everybody has this capacity. And same goes with the quiet, um, more contemplative, and actually in the story, more conniving kind of person of the tense, sophisticated, um, who the mother loves. So you almost have a good boy that's Jacob. Be a good little boy. Stay home. Let's just cook some lentil stew. Don't be like your brother who's going to roam around and be gone for weeks out in the uh, forest. Um, stay home. Be a good little boy. But the father figure seems to not respect um, Jacob as much, but is more in love with Esau. Maybe because he's not so wild himself. Um, he's now he's getting old and his eyesight's failing, so he's maybe staying back home. And that was always kind of a problem of his if you go back in the story. So it's almost like his son gets to live out on his behalf his own wildness, which what parent doesn't resonate with at least some aspect of that? Think about a parent who would like go nuts on the sidelines, screaming at their kid to, you know, uh, like do something aggressive, like take them on, you know. Um, you know, in a kind of crazy, passionate way. Often that's, that says um, almost everything you need to know about the parent in that moment. 
and his or her uh, unrecognized and untapped shadowy side um, and wants his, his or her son or daughter to live that out um, so they don't have to. So anyway, I'm going to do a whole thing on shadow work um, on another podcast. But for now, let's stick with the mythic nature of the story. So you can see already the kind of direction one uh, is invited to explore with a mythopoetic reading. You start saying, what do I see in myself? And you can start with other people. What do I see out there? But then that, then that has to turn into a mirror. So think about this. How is the wild one and the good boy going to be reconciled? Or are they not going to be reconciled? Or what kind of tension is it going to create in the family and then later on in the tribal culture, whatever the case may be? What about these two tensions? Because it seems to be just saying on a most basic level, these two tensions exist, the wild one and the good boy. And interestingly enough, in the story, the good boy, quote, wins out. Because in the very next scene, he dresses up Jacob, that is, he dresses up like his brother, puts on a hairy outfit, sneaks into his uh, father's room, brings him stew, and tricks his own father, lies, deceives his own father, so that he can receive the uh, inheritance. So crafty, clever, man of the tent, sitting around, he's got a lot, a, t a lot of time on his hands, but you have to respect that. I mean, on one level, like, how clever how conniving, <coughs> excuse me, how, uh, I mean, and you, you can imagine um, him dreaming up such a scenario with his mother, which is exactly what happens in the story. That's like the, the kid has not left home. He's still um, in bed with his mother, so to speak. Um, maybe he's, his mother, maybe he loves his mother and his mother loves him um, in, in, an in, in an unhealthy way. There's, there hasn't been a, a breaking yet. Well, it's about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So they anyway, they deceive Isaac, who has weak eyes, can't see. And he receives the inheritance, the blessing of the firstborn, and is the head of the family now. And in stumbles Esau. And when he realizes what happened, does what any of us would do, especially if we're in touch with our wild selves, he flies off the handle into a rage, into a red rage like his name, like his body, and is going to kill his own brother, just like the Cain and Abel story, which is a story of sibling rivalry. And by the way, that's another interesting parallel, You but read that story on your own. But it, it starts to, to, to broaden the contextual horizons of this uh, particular story. So... Um, in any case, Jacob has to run away. And here he really has an opportunity. Um, all his conniving, staying at home, being a good boy, what is that, what is it, what has that ultimately uh, resulted in? Well, having to leave home, which he should have done anyway. That's called growing up. Leave mom and dad, um, piss them off, go, you know, uh, you know, in our culture, we might say, make a name for yourself or, you know, establish your own household or whatever. But he's, he's not. He's just hanging around. And he's connived and deceived his way into this blessing and uh, now is, has to run away, flee for his own life. 
And really, on a mythic level, he's kicked out of his house. He's kicked out of his house. Um, he's, he's, he's reaped uh, what he's sowed, and uh, now he's a bit homeless. The moment he comes into his inheritance, he has to leave home and leave the family. And um, from, a, from a, a metaphoric point of view, symbolic point of view, we would say now he has a chance. Now he's a chance to grow up. Before he didn't have a chance when he was under, the, under his mom's tent um, trying to trick his dad while his dad's watching TV or whatever. Um, no, but now he has a chance. He's, he's kicked out into a wandering time period. So again, we start to think archetypally. All right, when did I leave home? Was I kicked out? Did I leave on my own accord? Did my own deception catch up with me after a while and launch me out into the unknown even though that's not what I wanted, I just wanted to be the head of the household. I wanted, you know, whatever. I wanted my inheritance. No, uh, kicked out. So that's where Jacob finds himself. He's, he's wandering. And it's at this point in his life, and not before, that he lays down on a stone pillow and has a dream. And the dream is a ladder. And beings, we call them angels, but they're just really means messengers in Hebrew, are descending and ascending. And he has a kind of taste that the world is not as he uh, once thought. His tightly controlled universe where he's got to be first, suddenly the heavens open up and he sees that even God is moving up and down the mythic ladder of nature and is everywhere, which is his first most profound insight. He wakes up and said, God was in this place and I didn't know it. I didn't know anything about it. We would call that a divine encounter. Now, um, maybe he doesn't have the psychological or emotional maturity to um, fold such a, uh, well, well, I guess we would say integrate such a divine encounter um, because his behavior doesn't change all that much. <laughs> but he sets off to a foreign land, and I'll, I'll kind of be quick here. He uh, falls in love and um, with a very beautiful woman, and he works for, this is a, a relative of his, works for seven years in order to receive her hand in marriage, um, which he does. He's set about working. Uh, maybe Robert Bly would call this kitchen work, if you're familiar with the myth of Iron John. He starts to learn a real craft. He starts to have to work for something for the first time in his life instead of being handed on a silver platter his inheritance and birthright. He learns the disciplines of hard work, and that's still not enough because on the wedding night, it's dark. And the father doesn't like the fact that Jacob is marrying his oldest daughter I mean, uh, his uh, youngest daughter, excuse me. So he swaps out this beautiful younger daughter for the older daughter, which is the traditional thing to do here. The oldest daughter gets married first, who it says in the text has weak eyes, just like Jacob's father. 
That's purely on the level of story, by the way. If we're getting back to what levels are we reading on, they're getting kind of mixed up, of course, but that's just what the story says. How we call that irony. There's um, a brush of irony in the story where he's deceived by a woman who has weak eyes, just like he deceived his father who had weak eyes. So he ends up sleeping with uh, the oldest daughter, marries her, He's upset by this and says, I still want to marry the youngest and um, works for another seven years only to eventually marry the one that he uh, fell in love with at first. So um, this is all, by the way, in the book of Genesis if you want to track all this stuff. Um, now, the story at this point leaves us with some unresolved issues. Big ones, huge ones. Will Jacob ever be reconciled to his father? Will Jacob ever have to deal with his brother that he cheated and now fled to a foreign country and has a family of his own? What's going to happen? In other words, he's about as far away from the wild man as he can get. And he's actually learning to become an adult. He's learned his kitchen work. He's worked now um, under the authority of some other person and now has a family of his own. And um, has many children, the text says. So Jacob eventually decides to come back home. His father is getting old, sick, is about to die. Um, a generation is about to pass, and he heads back home. And very interesting uh, elements of the story take place. Jacob arrives at a river. And right away, we, we can ask some contextual things here. Where do we see rivers or bodies of water in the text that are important? Well, all over the place. I mean, the opening chapter of Genesis is uh, um, oh, out of the chaos of waters, uh, creation happens. Um, you see it in the Exodus narrative when they get to a chaotic body of water and they cannot cross. You see it much later when the Israelites try to cross into the... Um, promised land, they're faced with a river. So the river crossing is, the, is a place of transformation. You see it much, much later with the story of John the Baptist saying, come on down to the River Jordan, be baptized, be changed, transformed, pass through the waters of transformation, uh, come out the other side, leave your old life, die, be reborn. All these uh, uh, symbols of uh, water rituals and water itself being a kind of cleansing, renewing, life-giving agent. So he comes to a river and he sends his entire family over and he's alone. So let's pause for one second and ask a mythic question. What would it look like for you to have a family, a name for yourself, a job, um, but you have all this unfinished, shadowy business with your parents, um, previous relationships, deceptions, um, patterns that you don't want to look at. In other words, you have unfinished junk hanging around and you're alone. And again, from a mythic, archetypal level, um, to be alone on a riverbank with no more props to answer the question, who am I? 
My family's on the other side of the river. I'm about to cross back into my home territory, but right now I'm in a kind of wasteland, no man's land. I'm in a country that's not my own. I am totally alone. The question begins to creep up, who am I really? Who am I? Who am I? And we're, we're getting close to questions of the soul. Who am I on the level of the soul? What was I born into this world to be, to do, to bring forth? Am I gonna continue to deceive my way? Am I gonna cover up all my past with just like uh, ornaments and saying, yeah, but that guy's got a great family, you know, look at him, Ivy League kids. Um, or am I gonna face what I don't wanna face internally, primarily? And that's the story of being alone on the side of the river. And of course it says, the text says, he wrestles all night with a man. Now we say angel because just after that he's referred to as a kind of messenger angel. And much later in the text, in a prof prophetic interpretive, this is context, uh, it says Jacob wrestled with God. Which is it? Well, probably yes. So here he is wrestling with himself, his aloneness, his identity, his name, his past. And interestingly enough, he's saying to this man, angel, in the middle of the night, I will not let go until you bless me. This is the same freaking guy who deceived his way into his father's blessing. So you know it's been weighing on him. What you get handed to you on a silver platter after might, might taste good at first, but after a while becomes this a kind of bitterness in the mouth and you wanna spit it out. What does my birthright mean to me? What does it mean that I have an inheritance? This does not taste real to me. So he's, he's begging this stranger, I will not let go. I will not let go of this wrestling, bless, uh, wrestling match until you bless me. What happens in the story, um, firstly, by the way, he's asking, he's asking also for the person's name. I forgot that uh, crazy dimension. So in this tell me your name is like almost like the psyche screaming out or the soul screaming out, who am I? What is my name? But the angel won't tell him or the, the man won't tell him his name. Um, and what he does in the scene is touch Jacob in his hip and wounds him. So he wounds him in a very vulnerable place for anyone, male or female, in the hip. And we know from this point on, Jacob is gonna walk with a limp. He's going to limp his way through life, which is exactly what soul work is like. You don't get a glimmer of your own true name without getting close to some wounds, without touching those wounds, and without at that point walking with a limp knowing actually, yeah, this is within me. I've been wounded in these ways and I'm gonna walk uh, with a limp the rest of my life. So he touches uh, Jacob, this mysterious knight figure, touches Jacob in his hip and he walks with a limp and then he utters something profound. He says, your name is Israel. And he does bless him in a way. You're going to be the father of a nation here, the nation of Israel. But the name means 
one who wrestles with El, which is a name for the divinity, for the divine, one who struggles with God. Now that is a getting closer to someone's soul name, to someone's true identity. He sheds by passing through this river his former egoic persona, that's what we would say in uh, contemporary uh, psycho-spiritual language, his egoic persona gets destroyed on the riverbank in a wrestling match. And he's given the gift of a new name. Or he stumbles upon what's been there all along, deep down, beneath all the deceptions. And that is a new name. One who wrestles with God. Which amazingly becomes then the name for the Jewish people. So if you, if you find yourself, like if you're Jewish or um, resonating with that uh, particular uh, tribe, what is that? The, the heart of that uh, name itself is a people group who is willing to wrestle all night long with the divine and is willing to be wounded by the divine. Or as Rilke says, by greater and greater beings. Uh, alluding to this very uh, story. The story's not over, really. Um, because after the wrestling match, he has to cross the river. And meanwhile, he's been sending all these gifts to his brother and showing his brother his family and his kids. And, um, but still, that's not enough. I mean, it's almost like maybe he's paying his brother off or something like this. But finally, Jacob has to fall down before Esau. And it says it, and he bows down before him seven times. By the way, side note, Peter asks Jesus, how many times should we forgive our brother? Up to seven? So that, now that's a powerful question rooted, I think, in this story. But nevertheless, he bows down, Jacob bows down before Esau seven times. In a way, it's, it's not like he says, I'm sorry I took your birthright, but he bows down to the wild, hairy brother before he can move on with his life. And if you start thinking about this story mythically in its true mythopoetic um, uh, uh, setting, context, power, that's where the power is. Is this not true of what it means to be a human being? That there are at least two sides to what it means to be a human being. There is a wild, instinctual, forest-loving, natural, hairy, red, vibrant, and vital part of our life that most of Western culture has cut off at the knees. It tends to leak its way out. So why people like go off to Vegas. What, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It, it leaks out anyway. Um, usually in unhealthy, unhealthy and destructive ways. There's just not vitality there. It's like letting off steam. It's like the, um, it's like the accountant who secretly, you know, gambles away, uh, you know, plays poker and, and gambles away too much money just every once in a while. 
Um, but nevertheless, that's part of our the deep structure of our psyche and our wholeness, this wild man, this wild woman at the very heart of our being. And at least in my view, unless we learn to bow down before this thing and honor it, then we're going to live a split life. And it might also be the case that the story works the other way around too, that you cannot live just red and hairy and tooth and claw and instinctually because it's bound to wreck certain parts of your life. You're bound to throw things away like your birthright. You're bound to, uh, to make poor decisions uh, if, if the only operating force is appetite. And maybe on one level, Esau needs to stand before Jacob and honor uh, the one who's learned some kitchen work the one who's uh, learned to make lentils and not just uh, kill um, wild game, uh, the one who uh, worked for 14 years, that's called discipline, <laughs> for the one that he loved. Um, and maybe for the one who's, who's, who's learning to do the harder work, and to wrestle all night with issues of identity. No, who am I? What is the nature of blessing? What is my name? Soul work. So maybe these, these two things need to be. I think, at least in my view, this is the real power of the story. What it mirrors back to us about our own growing up. About, uh, uh, about how to grow up. Um, and about the struggle of growing up, both in terms of um, who are you, God? Uh, this all-night wrestling match with the divine, with, and also who am I? Of course, that dual pr uh, prayer of St. Francis, who are you, God, and who am I? You can put it right in the heart of this uh, wrestling match. But also these two split sides of the human psyche, the good boy and the wild one. Uh, and to live with a kind of wholeness is to tap into both, I think, is to get beyond the good boy to the adult and the elder, not just one who pleases mommy, but who, who does the adult long-term thing, the one who has the next seven generations in mind, not just my birthright and I get the money and the inheritance, but what about the tribe, the future? That's tapping into the adultness um, that Jacob has the capacity for. Um, and also tapping into our Esau selves, one who is totally at home out underneath the stars. And, and, and I mean, in terms of extremes, this is part of what I mean. This has been almost completely cut off in Western culture. I mean, um, it, this is a number of years ago, and I don't remember the exact statistics, but the BBC uh, did a, some kind of study where People, they, were, they found out that people spend less than an hour or two outside uh, in an entire day, maybe only 15 minutes. You're just walking from your house to your car. We feel like being a human being is being separated from nature and from our wild, instinctual selves. Um, but that's not what, it, what wholeness looks like. And I think, by the way, our growing into our adult selves the, the Jacob at his best, growing into our wild selves, Esau at his best, 
is part of the wholeness needed to, to discover glimmers and glimpses of our deep soul name, structure, image, the thing we're born to do, the thing that will wound us if we do it, but also be our greatest joy. Those are the mythic themes that I think are in this story. So, man, I went on for a while. And I don't know, I just suddenly have the feeling that I might do another one of these stories and explore it um, in the same mythopoetic way. So let me end with a Rilke poem because I thought of it um, as I was trying to honor the story here. So here's how it starts. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. Like the kind of storm that just hit the United States. Like the storm of your own life. I can hear the far off fields say things I can't bear without a friend. I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives on across the woods and across time. And the world looks as if it had no age. Now we're in the mythic realm. <laughs> the landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm. Stay with that image. Imagine standing out there being dominated by a storm instead of fighting the tiny little things in your life. Then he says, we would become strong too and not need names. What he means by names are, are social, cultural identity markers. I know who I am. I'm a teacher. I'm a pastor. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a, my name is Kent. I, I come from this family. Um, no, what's beneath that? When we win, it's with small things, which is almost laughable in our present political climate with, with Trump, who seems to be, and those who are with him, seem to be only about winning. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. Think about winning a victory that kicks out the dreamers. I won that victory. But what ends up happening is that the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us, like nature itself. I mean the angel who appear to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings. He felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever 
was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand. This is when you choose to be dominated. This is when you choose to stand by the riverside alone and wrestle. This is when you turn toward those unsavory and shadowy things that you've been trying to push down and deny. This is when you look yourself in the mirror and say, yes, I chose this. And there are things that I'm not proud of. You begin to, to look at your, your life with some fierce honesty. So back to the poem. Whoever was beaten by this angel went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man or woman, I would add. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows by being defeated decisively by constantly greater 